Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist at Columbia University and a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery as one of the most important and fascinating topics in psychiatry, philosophy, and all of human life. I do deep dive interviews with people working toward flourishing after addiction, people like scientific researchers, artists and writers, spiritual teachers, and more. My goal is to learn from their experience and wisdom, seeking out the practical lessons focused on flourishing and positive change, while still respecting the depth and nuance of these topics of addiction and recovery. If that sounds interesting to you, head over to my website. I've got other resources and materials about addiction and recovery. You can sign up for my newsletter and get a free guide I made about many pathways to recovery. And I'll also send you updates about books, research papers, things I'm studying and exploring. The email list is the only way to get several of those resources and newsletters, so please do sign up on the website to be in touch. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. So, I am back. Regular listeners will notice I took a little break from the podcast. The only thing I want to say about that is that this is still a project I really enjoy, really love, actually. I was thinking about it recently when Gary Marcus, who's a psychologist and an AI researcher, who I did a writing seminar with, actually, was recently profiled on The Ezra Klein Show, and everyone's talking about AI. His specific point was that AI is probably not taking away your job tomorrow, but one thing it will do very rapidly is it will drive the cost of bullshit down to zero very quickly. And misinformation and divisive language will spread even more. And to me, what that, what that raises is that there are huge implications for human flourishing there's already so much nonsense and disinformation and quick fixes and magic pills in the area of addiction and mental health. And that will only get worse and it will become only more essential that we find within this space of online communication and writing and podcasting opportunities for real, authentic human connection and deep conversations. And so that, that's what I love about this project. And that's what I'm really feeling inspired to explore coming back to it after a very restorative couple of months off. When I started this podcast, I I wasn't really sure what it would be about. In a way, I'm still in an experimental phase. All I really knew is that I wanted to continue the conversations I'd been having in the process of writing my book. And so I'm really grateful for all of you being a part of that. And I would really encourage you to be in touch. I love hearing what people care about, guest suggestions, all the rest. It's part of my process in determining what is most worth doing. And so it it helps me a lot and it's always a pleasure. And one final piece of housekeeping that I must say, the paperback version of my book, The Urge, is out. If you don't have one, please consider getting a copy, buy it for your friends, choose it for your book club, request it at your library. Anything is much appreciated. And it may be, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to say this, but I think I, I can, that uh, it, it may be soon that the uh, the audiobook will be available soon in more territories. I've heard from people in the UK and the Commonwealth. They want the audiobook. We are working on it. Keep an eye out for that. Enough of all that. Moving on to the guest today, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with the writer, researcher, physician, public communicator extraordinaire, Judson Brewer. MD, PhD. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown's Mindfulness Center. He is an addiction psychiatrist and Buddhist practitioner, and he blends over 20 years of experience in mindfulness training with his career in deep scientific research. You may know he's the New York Times bestselling author and thought leader of books like Unwinding Anxiety, as well as the excellent Craving Mind, 
and uh, he has become a leader not just in addiction, but in the field of habit change and self-mastery. So we cover a lot in this one. Talk about his own experience with anxiety and panic, how control is the problem and not the solution, the scientific understanding of the addictive process and the model that he has developed, and how that ties to deep philosophical understandings of Buddhist philosophy, how to square the heterogeneity of addiction with the, the notion of a common neural pathway of addiction or what is shared amongst all of this heterogeneity, how values and ethics play into recovery and how to work with ethics practically without burdening yourself with a bunch of shoulds and thou shalts. We address this, this question, which I think is really important and challenging. How can contemplative practice like meditation actually help with severe cases of addiction? How can they do that when it sometimes seems so intractable and so difficult and to that point, at the end, he leads us through a very beautiful, very simple, very easily deployed guided practice of opening and curiosity, a sort of mini meditation. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Judd Brewer. All right, I'm here with Judd Brewer mindfulness practitioner, but more importantly, author and researcher and psychiatrist. It's a real honor to have you on. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. So Judd, I want to start with the personal. You've written in, I think, a couple different venues about your experience with panic and anxiety and the connections you saw there between addiction. And just briefly, you said that when you were going through med school, how when you worked with addictive patients, you saw how they were talking about the same sorts of struggles that I had learned in my own meditation training. And I'm extremely sympathetic to this. Yeah, I believe in the universality of addiction, but to a casual observer, somebody might say, come on, that's not, you know, it's not the same. This doesn't really match up with someone who has a severe intractable chronic addiction. So can you, can you say more about like, how is it addictive? Why was it addictive and not just a habit? Well, and I'll just say, you know, from the get go, you know, I've got, I've got a huge amount of privilege. And so, you know, where, where I'm speaking is just from my own direct experience. And I don't presume to say this is better, worse, the same as anybody else's experience. It's just, it's just my experience. It was back in college, actually, that I didn't know that I had a lot of anxiety. In fact, my body had to tell me that in the form of irritable bowel syndrome, which was pretty unpleasant. I won't, I'll spare you the details, but let's, let's just say I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And it forced me to really just look at, at my life to see, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these things to be healthy, you know, I'm vegetarian, I exercise, you know, play violin, things like that. And yet that, you know, the anxiety was, was persisting. So I realized that I didn't realize how my own mind worked and started meditating actually the first day of medical school and, and started getting into it and started seeing how, you know, how little I knew about my own mind and started to see through that process, all the different ways that I was falling into these addictive tendencies. So for example, with exercise, you can ask my family about how, <laughs> how annoying I was because when I would go home from college or, or med school, you know, I had to make sure that I could exercise and, you know, and this and that, and was, you know, spending a lot of time in these, these loops. And I didn't know what they were because I hadn't trained in psychiatry yet, 
yet when I finally did train to become a psychiatrist, I started to see, you know, how the universality of, of the addicted mind and, you know, ended up writing a bunch in my craving mind book about all the different ways that we get addicted. It goes way beyond just the classic substances that are, that are traditionally talked about. So one thing I also never learned in medical school residency was that anxiety and worry can actually be driven through the same process as any addiction. So, you know, negative reinforcement, we can probably get into the details, but the, the one liner on that is that, you know, the feeling of anxiety is very unpleasant. It can trigger worrying as a mental behavior that kind of distracts us or makes us feel better, or at least like we're doing something. And that, that is rewarding enough that it feeds back and says, Hey, next time you're anxious, you know, start worrying or, or whatnot. And then anxiety and worry can spin out into, you know, the far end of the spectrum of, of anxiety is panic where we're, you know, just so anxious that we've got doing wildly unthinking behavior. And with anxiety in particular, I see this in my clinic. I see this in myself, you know, that unpleasantness of anxiety can lead us to do all sorts of things to try to avoid it, whether it's distract ourselves on social media whether it's worrying, when I might, many of my patients talk about being addicted to worrying or uh, frank substance use. I've had tons of patients who anxiety has driven them to drink or to, you know, use other substances to try to try to avoid that unpleasant feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I definitely want to talk about the addictive process and uh, how you've tied that to things like dependent co-arising. But, you know, something in the way you're talking about this makes me think about this act truism from acceptance and commitment therapy that control is the problem and not the solution mm-hmm. it sounds like there's a lot of control a lot of attempts like exercising not to try to psychoanalyze you judd but go for it do you do you identify <laughs> with that i was i was curious about how the addictive process showed up for you maybe in even in the meditation practice itself whether it was avoidance and aversion and having trouble getting to the cushion or maybe it was the opposite for you like trying to be too rigid and forceful about or trying to get your mind to do what you want to do how do, how does that show up for you even now well you you psychoanalyze this i um in my first seven day silent meditation retreat this is during medical school by day three i was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of their treat manager because i could get into medical school but i couldn't pay attention to my breath mm-hmm. you know and another hint is um i would go on these silent retreats in the middle of winter in cold Massachusetts and wear only t-shirts in the meditation hall and I'd sweat through them <laughs> and then have to go and take a nap at each break because I was so exhausted. <laughs> so, so that gives you a sense of how I was really trying to rigidly, you know, force myself to pay attention to my breath or to concentrate. That was certainly an issue for me to the point where I remember a teacher probably exasperatedly telling me that uh, she felt like, well, your only path to enlightenment is going to be through striving. (laughs) Yeah, boy, I had no idea how my mind worked. So that control was certainly, and trying to control my mind was certainly a problem, especially because I had no idea how my mind worked at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So Let's jump ahead, actually, because I was going to get to this later, but I think uh, you tied to it very nicely. You, you talked about the notion, and this might relate to control, too, but you, you talked about the notion of dependent origination and the actual addictive process, like seeing 
the addictive process and its connection to the rules of cause and effect, mm. the, the way it's described in Buddhist teachings. So the way I understand it, just to quickly gloss it, and you tell me if it makes sense, is um, the craving and aversion arise in response to a feeling, to an affective tone, and that's associated with the object, but that's not the object itself. So what you have to do is pay attention, and then the the paying attention helps you to separate that craving from the actual object. Is that right? And if it's right, like how does it tie into this whole extremely complex philosophical teaching from Buddhism? Yeah, it, it is. And there's there's one other element that I would add that's critical, which is the effect of the, you know, how do we behave as a result of the craving and what does that do? And so first I'll agree with you. I forever tried to understand, you know, what are these 12 lengths of demand origination? you know, and just really beat my head against the wall. I guess that's the theme. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just really trying to understand it conceptually. And then as I started in a clinic, I started to see, you know, how my patients without having to know any of these concepts were describing the actual process itself, you know, and so something, you know, they'd have a negative emotion or they'd, they'd go into withdrawal or there'd be something unpleasant that, so there's that feeling tone that would trigger a craving for that unpleasantness to go away. And then they would do something, you know, if, if they were addicted to nicotine, they'd smoke a cigarette, if, you know, whatever. And that behavior would make the unpleasantness go away. And so in the dependent origination, there's a, the term that comes after craving. Upadana can be translated as clinging, but it can also be translated as sustenance. Mm-hmm. And so the sustenance piece really started to come into focus for me in terms of what this concept meant, which was that if you do a behavior that feeds the craving, that sustains the craving, that craving is going to continue. And so dependent origination is described as this samsaric cycle of rebirth, meaning that we're just going to keep spinning out in suffering and we're never going to, we're going to be stuck in that, you know, in that cycle until we step out. Hmm. Well, that turns out in modern day to be exactly what B.F. Skinner was talking about, what Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize for, you know, showing that this process is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sleeve slug. So about 10 years ago, I, I worked with a Buddhist scholar, Jake Davis, and we mapped out the process to see, you know, does dependent origination actually map onto what's in modern day called reinforcement learning? So did modern day scientists kind of rediscover these concepts, these principles, these theories that had been around since, you know, before paper was even invented. And it turns out that, and we've published this, uh, that it's basically the same thing. So, you know, Skinner gets all this credit in a very westernized world that says, oh, you know, science is great. What I would, what that suggests is the Buddhist psychologists map this process out thousands of years ago, 2,500 and plus years ago, and that it hasn't, that basic psychological mechanism of addiction formation hasn't changed, you know, our brains and our brains haven't evolved, you know, much in 2,500 years anyway. So that to me was a big eye opener for a couple of reasons. One, at the very basic level, helped me understand what the heck dependent origination was talking about and why it was so important. And I say that because this is what the Buddha was said to have been contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. So it's not like some 
footnote concept that, oh, by the way, you know, the Buddha did all these things and became enlightened and then, you know, dependent origination. That's what got him enlightened, according to the teachings. So really probably worth paying attention to. And that also makes sense in modern day because that's that process, positive and negative reinforcement, drives, I would say, 99% of addictive behavior, whether it's substances or behaviors or even mental behaviors. For example, worrying as a mental behavior can be driven and drive the anxiety habit loop through negative reinforcement. I never learned that in medical school. So let me ask you about that. Yeah. Because that's a strong claim, 99%. And what's coming to mind is uh, in population level recovery research from someone like, say, John Kelly, who did mm-hmm. actually described this in a prior episode, there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of how people go down an addictive pathway, right? Like there are, we've been talking a lot about people falling into a habit loop to feel better, to mm-hmm. they have a negative feeling and then they feel better. But he's also described three other pathways people who just want to feel good, maybe they have difficulty accessing positive experiences, Mm -hmm. but then also people who are trying to function better. And then Mm -hmm. also people who are just trying to fit in. So social compliance. And yeah, yeah, that's my understanding of like the typology literature too, that there's a lot of variation within addiction. And if anything, over the history of addiction research, we maybe have erred to side on the side of universalizing addiction itself, saying that it's like unitary. It's like all cases of addiction are like in the same way. What do you think about that? Well, the three examples that you gave all are consistent with reinforcement learning theory. So I would say it's a both and those may give some nuanced understanding, but it's still, you know, if somebody wants to fit in, there's a reward to that, right? If somebody wants to avoid a negative experience, there's a the removal of something unpleasant to that. So from a personal, you know, personal standpoint the learning process around, you know, approaching pleasure and avoiding pain is, is there, you know, if you look, I mean, even single cell organisms, you know, they have chemotaxis receptors to move toward nutrient and away from toxin. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly it's helpful. And, you know, John Kelly would know this as well as anyone else and, and be able to articulate it certainly better than I can, you know, these nuanced levels can help us get at the systems level issues that we can start addressing. So for example, social determinants of health, you mm-hmm. know, you can think of those as societal habit loops where, you know, racism has been reinforced through some mechanism, you know, often economic, et cetera, or your power, et cetera. So we can see how even those fall within, within these models. And, uh, who was it? Charles Duger wrote a really nice book called the power of habit mm-hmm. that really describes this at the, both the individual, but all the way up to the societal and cultural levels as well. So I I think, I think they're consistent. That makes sense to me too. So in other words, like a way to reconcile the power of this reward cycle and addictive process you're describing with the heterogeneity out in the world is that maybe there are a lot of ways of getting on the boat, but then once you're on the boat, there's sort of a final common pathway for how the, the cycles operate. Yes. Yeah. And that just understanding the basic principles of that final common pathway can help us understand where we get sucked in individually and also where we get sucked in societally and culturally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. All right, good. So let's go even broader <laughs> on that note, thinking about pathways of recovery and all the rest. 
It's something I've been trying to make sense of and thinking a lot about recently is is just flourishing in general. It's part of what inspired the name of the podcast is um, how do we characterize flourishing and recovery? This is a big semantic debate within addiction medicine, but it also, I think, has a real practical impact on how systems of care are delivered or how people make sense of all the different things they try to do to try to help themselves and help others. So, you know, there's like different mechanisms of change or different proposals for different types of recovery capital, et cetera. I'm just wondering as a first pass, like what do you think of when you think about like the components of a person's recovery? If you're thinking holistically, if you're thinking in terms of the buckets that people need, and if you're thinking about how to make sense of where people need to direct their attention to their recovery. I think this is a really interesting question. So one place that I might start is, and I'm just even thinking of this pragmatically and clinically, is really trying to understand how somebody is oriented from a reward standpoint. So much of society and you know all of the systems that get hijacked, you know, in the dopaminergic system in the brain are related to this, you know, surprise, excitement, you know, those types of things. And we've been trained societally that excitement equals happiness, you know, Mm. anticipating getting something. And that's actually, that's set up as a survival mechanism just to help us survive right? It's, it's really about dopamine's really about when there's surprise, it helps you learn. Okay. Wow. Didn't expect that. I'll remember that, which is whether it's, we find a new food source or whether we find a, a source of danger so we can go back to the food and avoid the danger. And then dopamine actually shifts from firing from that surprise, like big dopamine spritz to firing in anticipation. You know, that's why it's described as a motivation molecule. The idea is that if we're, it provides this restless, itchy, urgy quality of experience that says, go do something, right? Go get that or, you know, go avoid that. And the reason I mentioned that is nowhere in there is pleasure, pleasant, flourishing. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly survival is critical for flourishing. You know, we're dead. It's a non-issue. The reason I bring this forward as a distinction is that that is not flourishing. That's basically basic survival yet. Mm. Basic survival is critical. You know, I'm a big fan of Maslow and hierarchy of needs makes, you know, and pragmatically clinically, you know, if my, if my patients are worried about food, shelter, safety, et cetera, then, you know, we've got to start there as compared to, you know, let self transcend. <laughs> right. So the flourishing starts with having our basic needs met. It starts with meeting our social determinants of health. And then when those foundations are there, we can start to introduce the experience, not just the concept, but the experience of stepping out of that hedonic treadmill of you know, excitement equals happiness or getting new things or having new experience equals happiness. That's where it gets really interesting in terms of flourishing. So we can, and a lot of people just don't even have time to explore the difference between excitement and say joy or contentment. So that's, but the joy, the contentment, those qualities of experience, those, I would say, 
are, you know, I think of this not as a destination, but as a journey, that's where we can kind of step out of the, you know, get off the train of, you know, like always looking for excitement and onto the train of, of flourishing. And mm -hmm. the, you know, we know that the, uh, the signposts for flourishing have to do with, you know, connection, contentment, joy, ease. And this is where things like generosity and gratitude and, you know, uh, kindness and curiosity all come together. Right. I really like that. That's a really great reframe because I think a lot of people when they're suffering start to think, how can I feel better? And so that leads naturally to important things like say diet, exercise, nutrition, some of those things that you were focusing in on earlier in your life. People might focus on the sort of like near term, even psychological flexibility or how to work with their mind. But what I hear you proposing is first we take a step back and think about which wall the ladder is leaning against and really get clear on the values we're moving toward. And so you're proposing that there's a value, there's a psychologically motivated value for working toward contentment and the right kinds of contentment rather than the sort of false refuge of excitement experience, et cetera. Is that? Yes. Yeah. And the, the interesting good? piece there is it, this tends, this probably isn't a societally determined value. The society probably picks up on those that are inherent. So for example, my lab did a study where we just had people rank different mental states, you know, in terms of how rewarding they were. We didn't even, we didn't tell them that, we, but we basically set it up so that they would be telling us what is most rewarding in their experience. And not surprising, things like ang anger, anxiety, frustration uh, are ranked low. And things like contentment, curiosity, kindness, connection rank high. Now, you can look at those. We also asked at the same time, is there just a, a universal experience that doesn't even need to be defined that people share with, the, with those different categories? And it turns out that that is true. So with, well, before I, let's have you and maybe the listeners do this themselves. If you had to pick whether, and I'm specifically not defining this, if you had to pick whether anxiety feels more open or closed, what would you, what bucket would you put it in? So I'll give the listeners a chance to think it over for a second. I would say closed yeah. immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what our data show. So anger, anxiety, frustration. How about curiosity or kindness? Open, open. or closed? Sure. Yeah. And what feels more, what, what state would you rather be in a closed or an open state just in general? Mm -hmm. Open. Yeah. So our brains are actually set up <laughs> to, you know, move, move away from the unpleasant quality of experience of kind of closed, contracted, you know, it's, it's that, you know, that motivation where craving says, go do something. And once we've done that, then we, we get that release. Well, we can actually find things that are constantly moving us in that open direction without having to have something close <laughs> to force the opening, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're set up for this biologically. Thankfully, you know, we're set up for kindness. We're set up for connection. It just feels better than being divisive, than being separated, than being mean to each other. Good. I wanted to get there, actually. So we're set up for kindness. It feels better. Once again, I'm extremely sympathetic to this. 
as a Buddhist practitioner myself. But then tying it back to this question of what counts as recovery, how do we think about recovery, even in terms of what's a holistic design for a treatment program. Once you start talking about kindness and the way people relate to one another, that sounds a bit like ethics. And I think it's important to look at ethical behaviors, say, for example, in psychotherapy. You know, a lot of people bring that in, but I could imagine people kind of crossing the line and almost being a bit instructive or even sort of like conversion focused about trying to impose a certain ethical viewpoint. And so you wrote about this in The Craving Mind and you talked about your friend Jake, right? About looking at ethical systems and having the sense that there is a sort of natural psychologically driven cause and effect set of rules about what leads toward flourishing and what doesn't. That's sort of Aristotelian. And at the same time, I just, I'm just wondering how you resolve this or like, do you agree it's like a, a place we need to be cautious about applying it clinically? How do we, how do we apply something like practical ethics clinically? Yeah, I think anything that is based in, you know, in the head, especially often these, um, these ethical lists are set up by, by dead white men. Yeah. Uh, so I think anything that we try to apply from a thinking brain perspective is, is bound to fail. And the reason I say that is that, you know, over and over, you tell me if this is true in your own experience, our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain. So we could try to apply ethical principles from a top-down perspective and say, thou shalt, thou shalt not kill or this or that. What Jake argued was that you don't, you don't need to approach it that way. You can just look at your own direct experience and ask, how does it feel when I'm a jerk, right? And the feeding the, the uh, momentary cycle of egotism aside, you know, trying to get something, how does it truly feel when I mean to somebody? It doesn't feel good, right? So we can place all the ethical frameworks to the side and say, okay, they line up with our inherent biology. But I would say from a, from a recovery and flourishing standpoint, we really have to stick with our own direct experience. That's the only way behavior changes. And so you can look even from a reinforcement learning standpoint and ask, how does it feel when I'm a jerk? Doesn't feel very good. How does it feel when I'm kind? It feels better. You know, and our brains have these natural reward hierarchies where our brain's going to pick the behavior that feels better, right? Just like we talked about with these open and closed states, that's set up. You know, I think of it as uh, the shorthand is the finding the bigger, better offer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we've lost connection, for example, and we've turned to some type of addictive behavior to avoid the unpleasant feelings, you know, when we actually are able to get a taste of and reestablish connection, we can compare those, which one feels better. You know, it rarely is somebody given a choice, is somebody going to pick addiction over connection? So I think it's built into the biology. It's not, it's not about trying to pragmatically apply some ethical list or standard. I think that's an important reframe. And I think it's, it's certainly a lot more digestible to say that ethics are a realm of human feeling and functioning that people need to pay attention to in their recovery or that this is a domain that matters and and then leave it open-ended to inquiry and let it be like tested like a goldsmith rather than follow my rules. 
there, and, there are probably still some psychoanalysts who would balk at that, but which is fine. Like it'd be fun to have that conversation to see what what they struggle with there. If you go back to thousands of years before psychoanalysis was even, you know, dreamed up, uh, the Buddhists described this threefold path, which is pretty interesting. So the, they said they didn't actually have people start with meditation. That was the third, you know, piece on the path with they called the mental development. They started with generosity, and then they went to ethical conduct, and then they went to mental development. And one interpretation of that is that you know, you can start to feel the benefits of generosity more easily than some of these other things that can get a little more challenging. And so you start with the easiest thing, you know, even holding the door open for someone, how's it feel? You know, it feels good. So you can start to get a taste of what that opening feels like. And then you can apply that to, to ethical, you know, uh, ethical conduct. And it's not, you know, if you're going to be a good Buddhist, you're going to do this. It's, Hey, just pay attention when you're a jerk. Right. Mm. And then you see, oh, it's painful when I'm a jerk. And if I try to, if I'm a jerk all day and I try to meditate, guess what's going to go through my head when I sit down on the cushion, all Mm. the crap that I've done. Mm. So if we start to clean up our lives ethically, simply from paying attention to how much better it feels to live an ethical life, then it sets us up for success when we're trying to get into the nuances of of more, yeah, more nuanced mental development. So Mm -hmm. even back then they were, they were talking about it, not as a thou shalt, but a, Hey, you know, awareness can go a long way in helping you in helping things naturally unwind on their own. Right. 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 And it's also a path for inquiry, right? I would, it might even suggest a, a broadening of that to say, if you're wondering, if you're a jerk, pay attention to how it feels. And that, that will probably be helpful. So to bring it back to addiction, you know, for, for at least decades now, people have had the intuition and the experience that in cases of severe addiction, there's a need for some sort of ethical inquiry and practice. You know, looking back at early days of 12-step groups and how they originated and many of the steps focus on cleaning house, taking inventories, trying to find a way of restitution for whatever wrongs are still weighing on someone. Now, is there a reason why this kind of ethical practice would be especially relevant to addictions? Yes, I think so. And others, so this is just, just my opinion. If you look at it and and you even described it, you know, these things that are weighing on us, right? If we see how addiction led to a lot of, you know, unpleasant stuff in our lives and other lives, then it's a, it's a motivator for continuing to stay out of that cycle. So that's one piece. And the other is if it's weighing heavily on us, you know, this may go back to connection, et cetera. We can see what the blockers are for reconnecting with ourselves, with others, et cetera. And if we make amends, that's an act of, of humility and, and generosity in a sense where we're being generous and saying, oh, you know, I really, I really messed up here. Please forgive me. So we're asking that forgiveness piece can come in and help reconnect us with others and with ourselves. Often we have to forgive ourselves and that can open up the space for letting go of all of that, you know, all of that quote unquote baggage that can just weigh us down in the present moments 
we, you know, it's weighing us down now. It's not helping us. It might be getting in the way. So if we can find a way to kind of let go of some of those anchors that freezes up to be able to flourish now and into the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's helpful. And you know, what comes to mind now actually is that a lot of the stuff we're talking about is sort of like the Buddhist deep tracks. You know, this is serious stuff about serious practice, about ethical practice. I think even in just the general Buddhist community, there are a bunch of people who might go, they drop into a meditation center, whether it's IMS or a Zen center or whatever, and practice but for a little bit before they even get to sort of ethical trainings or wanting to take the precepts or anything like that. And so I was wondering about dose when it comes to contemplative practice and mindfulness interventions. So just thinking about the landscape of the way contemplative practice has made its way into mental health. We have like MBSR, MBCT, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, et cetera. And of course, you've developed a number of really helpful and useful apps. I've recommended those apps to patients, you know, things about smoking cessation or looking more closely at your eating or anxiety. And I feel like those are sort of, they're not the microdose, you know, like it's not a microdose because microdose feels like it's diminishing it a bit, but it doesn't, a lot of that stuff doesn't seem to be at the level necessary to really shake somebody out of a severe addiction. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think that's part of why people are interested in psychedelics or maybe even other types of macrodose treatments, like say, not just psychedelics, but also like Elias Dakwar doing ketamine plus mindfulness training and stuff like that. And um, I guess I'm wondering, like, what do you think about dose? Like, is is it yeah. true that like we have like, we have the micro and the macro? Like, is there a middle ground there? Because again, like when you're thinking about somebody who's really suffering from addiction and they're trying to stop the cycle... MBSR is not going to cut it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be one of these really bold things. So here, I think it's really looking at what are the signals and, you know, let's use psychedelics as an example. I think there's some really interesting work, you know, Roland Griffiths group and others have really done some pioneering work around psychedelics and addiction. And it's interesting that, you know, way before a long time ago, people have had, and I guess still describe psychedelics as these mind expanding substances, right? So if you think about this, this closed versus open framework, it's like throwing a hand grenade in your brain and blowing up the self, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like so blown up that you, you lose a sense of where you end and where the rest of the world begins. And so you can think of those macro doses or those mega doses, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter something big, blows your mind. And that mind-blowing experience gives people a taste that something else is possible, something outside of their normal realm of experience. Now, I would suggest that many people, if not most people, have had you know these moments of mind-blowing and didn't they didn't know what to what they were, didn't know how to make sense of them and most importantly, didn't know how to train themselves to do that again. So I think psychedelics, and they you know, it's probably more nuanced and more rich than this, but one aspect of psychedelics that, all, that, I, that I see from the literature is that mind-expanding experience where you get a, a true, solid taste of how good it feels to be open, okay? And when you feel that, and, and how you know, often people describe how small the, the self or the ego is afterwards, et cetera, they're like, wow, that was great. I want that again. And so one 
So I think it's it's helpful to help people really get a sense. That's the compass that says, hey, there's the there's a quote unquote North Star, which actually lines up pretty well with Buddhist concepts, mo- many spiritual traditions around whether it's Christianity or Islam or you know, all these spiritual traditions, they use different language for basically this expanding or opening quality of experience. So psychedelics may help us see what that, get a taste for that. Importantly, we've got to be able to train ourselves to move in that direction. And it's not a it's not a binary or, or a quantal. And for some people, it can be a quantal shift, but I think that's unusual. It's about training ourselves to be constantly moving in that direction. So if we see opening as a goal, we're going to miss it. But mm-hmm. if we really approach it as a journey and ask ourselves, well, in this moment, am I closed or contracted or am I open and expanded? Suddenly, that gives us a framework that we can work with right now, regardless of, of who we are, where we are, what we're doing, right? So if I do X, does it lead to contraction? If I do Y, does it lead to expansion? So if I yell at my colleague, how do I feel after that, right? From a Buddhist standpoint, that's cause and effect, right? You don't even have to mention the word ethics. You can just say, how's it feel when you're a jerk? And then suddenly we're like, ooh, that's painful. Or what I do with my patients, they want to quit smoking. I say, how's it feel? How's it taste? How's it smell? How's it feel in your lungs when you smoke a cigarette? When they really pay attention, ooh, not so good, right? So we become disenchanted with these unhelpful, unhealthy, however you want to describe them, behaviors. And then we can start to get a taste of, well, what leads what leads us on the path of flourishing? Oh, when I'm kind to myself and others, when I see how, even understand how my mind works, it feels, it feels good. So I would say, you know, psychedelics can be part of the path toward helping people see what opening feels like. And really, really importantly, we've got to be able to learn how our minds work so we can start working with our minds and putting our minds to work for us to move in the direction of flourishing. And it's not some, you know, where you have to spend 10,000 hours to do this. Any moment, you can notice what it feels like to be generous or not, right? And there's, well, so there's a let, step forward on the path. Let, let me ask about that, actually, just because that's such a rich set of concepts you introduced, and I love that. And you write a lot about disenchantment, which I think is really lovely. So there's the opening and there's the disenchantment. And I got to bring it back to the the, the individual who is suffering and is interested in contemplative practices. I'm just imagining someone, and I've talked to people like this, who sort of wonder, like, what what is the path? If I'm not going to take psychedelics, and there are a lot of people in recovery who will not take psychedelics, right? Sure. And they, they feel like that's not part of it. And there are a lot of Buddhists who will not take psychedelics because they've taken a vow to abstain from intoxicating substances. Keeping in mind, it's cause and effect and experimentation. So it's not to sh- throw shade on any Buddhists who do take psychedelics, but sure. that aside... Somebody might be wondering, like, how do I get to that openness? How do I get to that experience of disenchantment? How do I get to that place of like mind blown, even in like the smaller case of mind blown, maybe it's not DMT. Like you, you, it sounds like you had a mind blowing experience when you were crying on that person's shoulder and you were saying, I can't control my mind on retreat. It makes me think like, should, should people with severe addictions who are, who are safe for it and who are interested in it, like, should they be going on retreats? Or is that just translating a sort of religious framework into clinical practice? You see what I mean? Like, I'm just wondering, like, how do we get there if the garden variety sort of like psychotherapy groups, whatever, is not cutting it? I think that's a really important question. So one, 
uh, for many people, retreat can be an experience to help them kind of be secluded enough from the everyday workings of their lives and their minds that they can really look deeply and carefully and see the nuance. And for me, that was really helpful. You know, being able to see that pleasant experiences led to craving, that unpleasant experiences led to craving. You know, I remember <laughs> being like, oh my God, everything leads to craving. <laughs> you know, telling my teachers on retreat, and they're like, yep, you finally got it. So it's really helpful to be able to do that mind mapping. That being said, many people don't have the privilege of being able to go on retreat. So I had the, you know, I had all the circumstances to allow me to go on retreat. It, we don't have to go on retreat to be experiencing this in our day-to-day -day experience, in, in our day-to-day -day lives. We can notice, you know, what's it like to hold the door open for someone? And that gives us a first taste of expansion, right? We can notice when somebody's kind to us because the, being the recipient of kindness helps us, you know, it's contagious. It feels good when somebody's kind to us. So you don't need to take a psychedelic or go on retreat to experience kindness. You don't need to do any of that to experience generosity. But what you do need to do is know how the mind works. And that's actually relatively straightforward. So, you know, you, you mentioned the word disenchantment. This is this is not my concept. This is from straight from the Buddhism concepts. And, you know, something that struck me when I was reading some of the, the early texts was there's this line the Buddha speaking, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. I was like, huh, what's that mean? <laughs> and so it dawned on me, oh, you've got to see how unrewarding the whatever the samsaric loop is before you're going to be able to step out of it, because that's how the brain works. It's going to keep doing something if it perceives that it's rewarding. So the Buddha said, well, don't avoid it. Don't take some ethical vow pay attention and see what you get. And then that's going to provide a much stronger impetus for behavior change than any vow will, you know, again, thinking brain, oh, I shouldn't do this versus feeling body, which says, ooh, that doesn't feel good to do that. Why would I bother doing that? Do you see which one's much stronger? Yeah. So if we had just understand that basic concept, cause and effect, that's really, you know, pretty much it. Cause and effect and awareness. So if you are aware of your behavior and you see the results of your behavior, if it's unhealthy and unhelpful, you're going to stop doing it. If it's healthy and helpful, you're going to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of someone who might, not someone specifically, but sort of like an archetype. I'm thinking of someone who might say, I, I buy it. I've had experiences like that in the past where I bring attention and awareness and curiosity to an experience and it helps. But right now I just can't do it. I'm in so much pain. It feels like I can't. I'm sitting here in your office and it all sounds nice, but then I'm just struggling and I feel like I need to check out. And it's like, I cannot resist that drink or I cannot yeah. resist that drug. So what do you do? What is your advice in that case? If someone yeah, feels I, like they just can't follow that suggestion. Yeah, I see that all the time. And so the key here is, not to give somebody some prescriptive practice that they're going to fail at, but to be aware enough to meet them where they're at. And I have plenty of patients who say, yeah, you know, went and drank again. And so I think of this as, as 
again, not to keep going back to Buddhism, but none of this stuff that I'm talking about is new. Uh, you know, none of these are my concepts. There was this thing, this conversation the Buddha was having with his son, Rahula, and he said, you know, if you're about to do something, reflect on it before you do it. If you can't do that, reflect on it while you're doing it. If you can't do that, reflect on it afterwards. And the idea was cause and effect. And so this, this is really helpful pragmatically for addiction treatment. If you can't stop yourself from drinking and willpower is more myth than muscle. So generally I don't even start there. It's like, if you're going to feel compelled to drink, you know, somebody might be intoxicated while they're drinking, but they can sure pay attention to the results of it. And so I say afterwards, just take stock. What, what did you get from that? Right. Look at all the effects of the drinking. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't cause enough, enough pain, let's say in their life, they're going to keep doing it because mm-hmm. that's how the brain's set up. But if they, if, if there's enough, if the balance starts to tip toward, wow, this really is not serving me. That's where they start to become disenchanted and then start to build that motivation from within to say, okay, I'm going to pay attention again afterwards and build more of that. I think of it as building our disenchantment database. And then they can get motivated to pay attention during. And they're like, is it really this good? Right. And then they can pay attention before. And they're like, well, last time I did that, I got this. Do I really want to do this? Not from a thinking perspective, but feeling into their direct experience. So I'll give you a non, well, I'll give you an example of eating. So many people are addicted to, you know, literally addicted to eating, but let's not even go, you put it that uh, severe of a term on it. Many people are just, just will overeat habitually and not pay attention. So in our, we did a study where we embedded this craving tool where we had people pay attention as they overate uh, in using our eat right now app. And it only took 10 to 15 times of people overeating for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to shift behavior. Mind you, these were people that for years and years and years had been overeating and couldn't get themselves to stop. And I see that with smoking. I see that with, with all sorts of addictions. If we really pay attention to that cause and effect, even if we go ahead and do it, we can learn from it. And so I think of this as bow to each experience as a teacher and ask, what can I learn from this? Instead of spending energy beating ourselves up and shaming ourselves or feeling like we're, we're broken, you know, we're not broken. It's just our brain that's a little miswired and we can rewire it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very helpful. So like, even if we're looking at the results to open up to it with curiosity rather than having an internal critic or making some sort of plan for next time or trying to control how you feel and mitigate the hangover, just to really be curious about it and really bring that open curiosity to the rest of your life as much as you can. I really, I'm on board, obviously, with what, with everything you're saying as another addiction psychiatrist Buddhist, you know, and I get to ask you a question. I I try to ask a version of myself. So it's not, it's not to be too challenging, but you know, Evan Thompson and the whole sort of like why I'm not a Buddhist critique angle of all of this stuff might say, you know, Buddhism isn't value neutral. It's soteriological in that it has a sort of hypothesis about how to get salvation and this is not self-evident from the bottom up. It's not, it's not just that neuroscience proves the facts of Buddhism. Buddhism can't be true because you can't get from an is to an ought, et cetera. I think you know where I'm going here, but like how has science, has science ever disproved anything from Buddhism for you? Or at least in the, at the margins, like has science ever 
help to clarify like a dispute within Buddhism? There's a million disputes within Buddhism. Like, how, yeah. has it has it challenged your prior notions in any way? Or talk a little bit about your willingness to have the Buddhist belief disproven. Oh, I yeah. You know, any concept. You know, even Buddhism talks about being attached to any concepts causes suffering. So. You know, that's one thing that I really try to in, encourage people to to call me out on. You know, if I'm attached to some concepts, you know, how, how how's that going for you, Judd? <laughs> <laughs> so here I'm really open. You know, the only thing that I'm interested in is how can we help people not suffer, right? My sense was that the Buddha was interested in that as well. That being said, so if there's anything of some Buddhist concept that gets in the way of somebody flourishing then we need to let go of that concept. And I would say, you know, one thing that, that science has helped confirm for me, and actually I thought that I had this conception that, you know, meditation was about doing something. And then our neuroimaging work disproved that. I was like, Oh, I guess it's not about doing it's about, that's what this being is all about. And that's where the curiosity and all these naturally, you know, getting out of our own way types of practices come in. So it helped reinforce, well, it helped teach me that this really isn't about doing or striving. This is really about being and just noticing cause and effect and how the self will, you know, in whatever form it takes, whether it's an addictive behavior or something else, the self will naturally fall away when we see how painful it is. So it solidified a lot of Buddhist concepts, helped explain a lot of Buddhist concepts to me. It helped simplify them, you know, like the reinforcement learning being basically dependent origination helped me understand that. But most importantly, pragmatically, it's really helped me clinically, you know, and even, you know, we do, we do studies on the apps that we, that we developed to see if they work, you know, and we got to we got a 67% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores with our unwinding anxiety app and people with generalized anxiety disorder, right? Show me a medication that can do that. And I will prescribe that to all of my patients. So nothing has outcompeted the Buddhist concepts yet. And when something can game on, because then there's something better. That sounds great. So let's talk about practices then. I would love to get maybe a short taste of the way you might walk someone through an awareness or noticing practice. And I was thinking about rain before, cause you've got your own angles on rain. Does that, how does that sound to you? Or is there anything else that comes to mind? Let's do something even simpler. And this ties into the, we first have to start by knowing how our mind works, right? So I, I could lead a rain practice, but if we don't know the, the, you know, the context, it's not going to be helpful. So what I do with, with my patients is something that anybody can do is I start by, you know, helping, giving them a framework of, you know, how does, how does dependent origination work, you know, basically, and, you know, really you can break it down to three things, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So let's use something that I've never met anybody that's never been anxious ever. So let's use anxiety as an example. So we hopefully all can relate to this. So anxiety, that feeling of anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying in many people, right? Or it could be distraction or it could be drinking or whatever. So the practice I would walk people through is just remember a time recently, as recently as possible when you felt anxious and just feel into the direct experience as much as you can taking care of yourself, respecting all of your boundaries. And just notice what that feels like. 
And notice if there's an urge to make that go away, to want to avoid it. To, oh, how's it feel? Typically, it's, oh, doesn't feel good. And then check to see if the mind is flipping into worrying. Oh, for a lot of folks, it's what's causing this or how long is this going to be here? Or what can I do to make it go away? And here, check the tone of voice. This is the practice. Check the mental tone of voice. Is it a, oh, or oh no, or mm? Does it feel contracted? And now, just see if you can get curious about that feeling of anxiety itself. Huh, what does this feel like in my body? And if helpful to awaken that curiosity, just ask yourself, is it more on the right side or the left side of my body? Huh, right side or left side? And the real practice here is just awakening this inherent capacity of curiosity. And so the last piece I would say is now compare the, oh no, Oh no, I'm anxious, or what am I going to do about this? To, oh, what does this feel like? That, oh, to, oh, is a transition any of us can make at any moment from closed and contracted to open and expanded. And then I would say rinse and repeat, you know, as many times throughout the day as possible, we can just look for that mental tone of voice. Oh, whatever it is self judgment, worry, you know, dread. And then go, oh, dropping into our body and just asking, what does this feel like as compared to why is this happening? Mm -hmm. Really, really helpful. Really, really helpful. And if you have any doubt, I would say to the listener, try it. Try it on. See what happens. Don't believe me. (laughs) Judd, you've been really generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for your writing and all of your research and for your work trying to translate this work into deployable and scalable stuff like your apps and otherwise it's really wonderful and inspiring and so i I really do appreciate it i want to let you go in a minute but do you have any like parting words or tips for the audience or just where to find you where to learn more i would say i have a bunch of free resources on my website which is just drjud.com drjud.com and i will also say we didn't talk about this but we're doing a lot of emphasis now to help clinicians with burnout and anxiety, et cetera. And so we've got some free programs for clinicians and they can, there's just a tab on my website about all the different things that we've provided. And there's free resources for non-clinicians as well, uh, educational videos, et cetera, et cetera. If they want to take a look at the apps that we mentioned, those are also there as well. So yeah, that's probably the place to go. Uh, just drjud.com. And as I would say as a, as a, you know, parting phrase, uh, never underestimate the power of curiosity and kindness, you know? So just imagine what it would be like if we all fostered curiosity and kindness, and then spread those as social contagion, as compared to whatever else we might be spreading to others in society through our interactions. Beautiful, Jed. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's my interview with Judd Brewer. I hope you enjoyed it. So this was a heavily cross-referenced episode. I talked about a few topics that we also dove into on other episodes of the podcast. Just a few of them. Check out Melissa Phoebos in episode 18 for different components or different sort of buckets of recovery practice. 
John Kelly in episode 12 for different pathways of addiction and the heterogeneity of addiction. And of course, Elias Dakwar in episode six for more discussion of contemplative practice and blending contemplative practice like meditation and mindfulness training with treatment for addiction. I also thought it'd be useful to review Judd's model of the addictive process for folks who might not be familiar. His model is related to the Buddhist concept of cause and effect, independent origination, a very complex sort of 12-step philosophy. The upshot, as he applies it to reward-based learning, is that craving and aversion arise in response to a feeling. The feeling is associated with the object, but the craving and aversion are associated with the feeling rather than the object itself. And then, of course, his important addition is that the craving and aversion then lead to behaviors. The implication here for working on the craving and the resulting behaviors is to pay mindful attention to the feelings in the moment so you can separate the craving from the feeling. Now, there's more on this in his relevant papers, so check the show notes for more. And then a final mention here is that uh, I talked about Evan Thompson just briefly. This came up in other podcasts before, in particular when I talked to Eric Garland way back in episode four about the, the science of contemplative practice and its application to addiction medicine. Evan Thompson's book is Why I'm Not a Buddhist. I certainly don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's a fantastic and really useful philosophical treatment of how we use Buddhism in science in clinical practice. So once again, check the show notes for the links. You can find all of that over at carlericfisher.com. And once again, the paperback version of my book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, is out. So thanks to everyone who's already gotten their copy. Any way you can get help me get the word out is much appreciated. And a great way to check it out is just to head over to my webpage where I have a handy list of online retailers, including the indies. So otherwise... A reminder to sign up for my email list to immediately get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. You'll also stay up to date with the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings, and all of that is at carlericfisher.com. Finally, if you're finding this podcast useful, please help me get the word out by subscribing on your podcast player, leaving a rating and review, and sending this episode to just one other person you think would like it. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, this podcast is just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated.